ADP knows anything you hear, anything you don't hear, anything you kind of heard, anything you weren't supposed to hear and now have to pretend like you didn't, can change the world of work. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from the Wall Street Journal opinion page. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of the journal. Thanks for joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or indeed wherever you get your podcasts. This week, after another debate among Republican hopefuls for president, is anything likely to change in the race that still seems dominated by the man who, once again, wasn't there? On Wednesday night, we retreated to a feisty and at times chaotic battle at the Republican presidential library as seven candidates fought for attention, while Donald Trump who still enjoys a mere 40-point lead or so in national polling for the GOP primary, stayed away. So did we learn anything? Did anyone break out from the pack? Or did anyone's campaign suffer a fatal blow? More importantly, as the GOP primary race unfolds, what are we learning about the new Republican Party? Is it now a fully-fledged populist movement, rejecting many of the canons of the Ronald Reagan conservatism that's defined it for so long? Or is it still merely enthralled to the strange magnetism of Donald Trump himself, its long-term ideological direction, perhaps, still uncertain. Well, to talk about all this, I'm pleased to say I'm joined this week by Matthew Continetti, author, commentator, director of domestic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute. A leading conservative journalist, Matthew co-founded the Washington Free Beacon in 2013. He's now a columnist with Commentary Magazine, and he also writes for many other publications. He's the author of several books, including the, what I must say is the absolutely excellent The Right, The Hundred-Year War for American Conservatism, which was recently republished in paperback. Matthew Continetti joins me now. Matt, thanks very much for joining Free Expression. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Matt, I don't know whether you think anything different about the debate last night that we had, the um, so-called presidential debate. I'm not sure how any of those candidates are really presidential contenders, but the debate we had last night, pretty feisty and pretty lively. I want to get on to talking really about the state of the Republican Party and the future of the Republican Party. But do you have any thoughts? Do you think anything happened last night that moves the needle, that changes the race in any significant way? I really don't, Jerry. I think that People who were hoping one of the candidates would have a breakout moment last night were almost certainly disappointed. I don't think Ron DeSantis did himself any harm, but he certainly didn't have that kind of booster rocket moment where he could shoot to the stratosphere and truly be the sole competitor against former President Trump. I don't think any of the other candidates really showed signs of life either. I've heard you talk about it as well as others have too. You know, it does look like those candidates who are surging up into the low single digits and have been, you know, for the last few months that maybe, again, with their failure to sort of move the needle or break out, that maybe this is now for the time for them to drop out. We have another debate coming up in just over a month. As I understand it, I think the conditions for the sort of the entry requirements for that are a little higher. Do you expect to see now some of those also around to start dropping out? I would hope so, because... I really think that Republicans should be faced with the binary choice next year. Do you want to renominate Donald Trump for the third time or do you want an alternative? And if the alternative vote is split among many candidates, then as Dana Perino pointed out at the end of last night's debate, Trump will almost certainly win. So anything that would force the field to consolidate quickly would be beneficial to actually presenting a choice to Republican voters. Now, it may well be that Republican voters simply want to renominate Trump. They like Trump. They think he was a good president. They don't think he has done anything wrong. And if 
he has done something wrong, then most Republicans think Joe Biden did it too. So what does it matter? But just having the option of another choice, I think is important. And you don't get that unless there's a consolidated field. Again, I mean, you make the point well yourself, I was going to say when you started to answer that it's by no means necessarily the case, is it? That, that Although it's true that you know, Trump is still polling, and I know national polls, we can all express the usual caveats about national polls. You know, even in the state polls in Iowa and New Hampshire, he seems to be polling in about the 40s, you know, with the other candidates between them on about 50%. But there's no absolutely no guarantee, is there, that, say, those bottom three or four candidates dropped out, that their support all necessarily goes to the anti-Trump candidate. They may not distribute quite widely across, including Trump himself. So I think sometimes the kind of the anti-Trump crowd, and I certainly don't consider myself pro-Trump, but they maybe have sort of slight wishful thinking here that there is this kind of mythical single candidate that the rest of the party is just dying to unite around and to defeat Trump that way. But that's still a bit of a long shot, isn't it? I think that's fair. I think what people who would prefer a different choice for the Republicans in 2024 would say is that they don't want a repeat of 2016. In 2016, Donald Trump did not win a majority of the votes cast in the Republican primary. But because of winner-take-all rules in the GOP, he was able to cobble together a very substantial delegate lead. And he was helped in that effort by a split opposition between Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and even John Kasich, who continually stuck it out and thus prevented a consolidation of voters who would have perhaps voted against Trump. Of course, we don't know the hypothetical, but I do know that the Republicans who would like a different choice in 2024 don't want to relive 2016. Again, you, as you say, nobody really broke out of the pack last night. I think I agree with everything you said about the debate. It does seem, though, doesn't it, especially after Nikki Haley's strong performance in the first debate, that maybe the race is actually evolving a little more quickly than perhaps it looks on the surface. You know, it's obviously Trump, but it does look like kind of increasingly like Trump. And then DeSantis, Ramaswamy, and Haley, really. And the rest do look, barring something, Tim Scott, Chris Christie, Mike Pence, Doug Burgum, we all love him. They do look at distant sort of followers on. And so maybe we could get that evolution. Do you think that's possible? Do you agree, first of all, that it's not really Trump plus seven? It's Trump plus Ramaswamy, Haley, and DeSantis plus three or four. Do you think that's roughly right? I do. I wonder whether I would include Ramaswamy there, because I view Ramaswamy as essentially a stand-in for Trump. And he had shown some momentum in the polls, but that momentum seems to have been arrested after the first debate. And in fact, when you look at some of the comments he was making early on in the second debate, it was clear that he had been told or realized that he did not come across well in the first debate. And so he was trying to be a little bit more collegial and humble. It didn't quite work out. I think that the two likeliest candidates of the field that we've seen who could threaten Trump would be DeSantis and Haley. Haley's been rising in early state polls. I'm not sure her performance last night will help that. She seemed to be fighting everybody all at once. And I don't know whether that will play to her advantage. She is a very skilled communicator. She's a good campaigner. But again, I just look at DeSantis. I see someone who's not making any mistakes. He is forceful in his message. He is similar on all the issues to Trump. And he drew a contrast, I think, on the abortion issue with Trump that was quite solid and substantive and would probably draw some Republican primary voters to him. DeSantis, to me, remains the most plausible alternative to Trump. He just hasn't been able to 
propel himself any higher than that 15%, 20% he enjoyed earlier this year. In fact, he's gone down in the polls. He's kind of stopped that fall lately. I wonder actually if this debate he has planned with Governor Newsom of California, whether that might actually be an opportunity for him to shine. If I were counseling DeSantis, I would actually say maybe he should skip the next debate, just focus on this debate with Newsom, and then kind of make it more of a choice between Trump and DeSantis. We sort of all agree. I think that Trump is still obviously the prohibitive favorite, although again, nobody would, uh, given the unpredictability of politics, I don't think anybody would sort of bet their mortgage on it right now. If he is going to be taken down, and again, first of all, I agree with you, it's going to require some consolidation in the field. What's going to undo him? And obviously we can talk about the legal stuff, which we still don't quite know how significant that will loom for people when it actually really starts to be very present and people are very aware of it. But DeSantis for a long time has been trying the, the he's unelectable argument that, you know, he can't win. He lost in 2020. He lost all those seats in 2018 and he failed to win a seats in 2022. So it's the electability argument. You can, that way you sort of avoid the direct challenge to the man's character, but you kind of hint at it by saying that he's just unelectable. Or is it now, as you start to see, and you make the point very well, and I did think DeSantis came at him very strongly on the abortion thing last night, sort of attacking him for his Trump's remarks about so-called terrible decision that he'd made and others had made on these type restrictions on abortion. Is policy slash kind of ideology, is there any conceivable way you can see that Trump could be beaten, could be outflanked to the right on some of these issues in the Republican primary? Well, I think that DeSantis' strategy boils down to Iowa. He has to win Iowa. Otherwise, the game is over. What we know about Iowa is that its Republican electorate is very socially conservative. And did not vote for Trump in 2016. It preferred Ted Cruz. In many ways, DeSantis's campaign resembles Cruz's campaign from 2016. I actually don't necessarily think that's a good thing, but it is the campaign he's running. And the head of his super PAC was Cruz's former campaign manager back in 2016. So abortion and the life issue is a place where DeSantis can say to the social conservatives of Iowa, look, I'm on your side. Trump in a second term, cannot be trusted because he's beholden to no one. If you care about this issue, I'm with you on this issue and I'm present. And that may be enough for him to score an upset in Iowa next January. Iowa can be very fluid. It tends to be eccentric in some of its outcomes. If it doesn't go that way, if Trump simply wins Iowa outright next year, then there really is no primary. And they're really, in retrospect, has been no primary. It's just always been Trump. He's essentially been the incumbent president, incumbent nominee, and all of these rivals were really pretenders. I do think it is still plausible to make the case that DeSantis, or if not DeSantis, possibly Haley, could really throw a wrench into Trump's plans by an upset victory in Iowa. And that's why I think that DeSantis's performances in these debates have not hurt him at all because he's come across as a plausible Republican presidential nominee. The issue, though, is Trump's outsized status in the Republican Party and in American politics. And when presidential nominations are determined by earned media coverage that is free publicity from the media and small-dollar support, well, Donald Trump is the king of both those things. It's very hard to beat him. Well, we're going to take a quick break there. But when we come back, I'll have more with Matt Continetti about the future of the Republican Party and indeed conservatism itself. Stay with us. 
Rapid expansion? We're ready. Worker shortage? We're good. Anything can change the world of work. A celebrity buys the company. Depends on who it is. But relax, we've got ADP. From HR to payroll, ADP designs forward-thinking solutions to take on the next anything. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. I'm back with author, commentator, and head of domestic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute, Matt Continetti. All right, let's talk about where this race fits into the larger picture of the conservative movement, if you like, the Republican Party, which you've written a lot about, including, as I say, this, the excellent book, The Right, The Hundred-Year Battle for Conservatism. If you look at it, and again, just in a very simplistic way, kind of add up the polling numbers right now. If you take Trump where he is and you add Ramaswamy and you add maybe a significant proportion of DeSantis's votes because he's kind of pitched a pretty strong sort of, you know, kind of pragmatic populism maybe, but certainly he's kind of lent in that direction. You add those up and on the other side, you put the pure, should we say, sort of Reagan conservatives, the maybe Mike Pence and maybe Nikki Haley and Chris Christie. It's pretty lopsided. I mean, you you know, like between them, the kind of the populists seem to have at least two thirds of the vote. First of all, I, I realize I'm being overly simplistic and there are so many different factors why people vote for Trump. But doesn't it suggest to you that if it's not Trump's party, it's the populist party right now? It does. And I, I would say it is Trump's party. He's the leader of the populist movement and the Make America Great Again movement. And it has transformed the party. You look at some of the issues, uh, whether it's the border, whether it's the net zero climate agenda that is causing such disruptions all around the world. You look at the rise of China and the debates that are necessary to disentangle some of our relationships and dependencies in China. You look at Trump's moves to speak to union workers in Michigan instead of attending the debate, or even the daylight he's created between himself and the pro-life movement. This is a different type of GOP than it was under Ronald Reagan. And I'll just say, this type of development is not new in history. Ronald Reagan's conservatism was different than Barry Goldwater's conservatism. Barry Goldwater, the great conservative nominee in 1964 who went down to that terrible defeat at the hands of LBJ, he was quite libertarian. He was also very, very hawkish in foreign policy. Reagan was a foreign policy hawk, but he was libertarian-minded in economic policy, but he also embraced the rising religious right when he ran in 1980. So, Reagan wasn't quite Goldwater, and Goldwater was not a reflection of the previous conservative leader, Senator Robert Taft of Ohio, who was an opponent not only of FDR's New Deal and big government, but also an opponent of an American foreign policy of global leadership alliances and foreign intervention. So the parties change, the coalition changes, the conservatism changes. And I think what's interesting is that conservatism tends to change in response to changes on the left. And as the American left has embraced identity politics, as the American left has kind of grown more powerful with institutions throughout our society, but also more removed from the great mass of voters without college degrees in America, you're going to get a different type of Republican Party, a different type of American right. That's what we're seeing today. 
I want to let's sort of just delve into that a little bit, into some of the specifics too. I'm sure what exactly you described is right. It's very interesting the way you frame it as, as a reaction to the left too and what we've seen. But let's let's take on the economic front. I mean, as you know very well, there are these kind of quite vibrant new strands in conservative thinking. You're absolutely right, by the way. I take the point also that everything old is new again. But, you know, you're seeing the so-called NatCons or people who have a very radically different sort of economic agenda from the agenda of the, the mainstream of the Republican Party for the last 40 years or so, which favors not just on things like on trade, where they favor, as Trump did, tariffs and a much more protectionist approach to, to international economic policy or immigration as restrictionist immigration policy. But they even want targeted government spending, targeted to support American industry. They're very strongly pro-safety nets. Some of them are even in the context of what we're seeing with the UAW at the moment, sort of pro-union, maybe calling for structural changes to give workers more voice. This is very, very, again, out of the mainstream of the last 40 years. First of all, how much does Trump, do you think, really reflect that? And how much traction do you think that's really quite significant? Because we've seen kind of foreign policy isolationism before, you know, the culture war stuff we've seen for a long time. But this kind of embrace of quite an activist role for the state in supporting the economy does seem to be something relatively new in conservative terms. Yes, I think there are a few things we should keep in mind. The first is that Trump, when he spoke to the union laborers in Michigan the other day, uh, pledged to pursue his agenda of economic nationalism if he's restored to the White House. So he has certainly introduced or reintroduced economic nationalism to the GOP when he became its nominee in 2016. He mainly thinks of economic nationalism as protectionism, as building the tariff wall, tariff man, as he called himself back in 2018. That's unlike some of these intellectuals and policy wonks in D.C. who want to go a step further and actually want to take on an affirmative role for the state in industrial policy, so subsidizing industry, or in subsidizing families and social policy, transfers to workers. Trump is kind of ambiguous on those sorts of questions. We know for sure he's a protectionist. He's been a protectionist since the 1980s. We know for sure he's an economic nationalist. He wants to improve America's economy vis-a-vis our allies as well as our rivals. He wants to maximize our energy resources, our carbon energy. We know that. It's not so clear to me that he will embrace some of these policies that are a little bit more intrusive into microeconomics, into labor markets, for example, that are being pushed on him. And that, I think, speaks to a Something else we should keep in mind, which is what Trump did was kind of broaden the realm of acceptable ideas on the American right. Because he overthrew the Republican establishment, everything was up for grabs. And ideas, attitudes, proposals that had been confined to the margins for many, many years were given another look and are now entertained, taken seriously, because, well, why not? Trump is in charge and Trump can go in every direction, depending on how he feels or what he's responding to. However, despite these ideas being taken seriously or being reconsidered, you know, most Republican elected officials are still pretty much of the type that wants to see government limited, wants to see taxes kept low, doesn't want to increase regulation. You see that often in the House of Representatives, which despite being Trumpier than the Senate, I mean, more personally devoted to Donald Trump and MAGA and, say, Trump's foreign policy, America first, 
hasn't gone for a lot of the new economic proposals you see circulating in some quarters of the American right. Let's talk about the foreign policy picture too. And again, there's a more familiar pattern there that we've seen with Republicans in the past, obviously most famously in the 1920s and 30s. Again, isolationism is a term that's bandied around, but that was pretty much characterized what a lot of Republicans stood for at that time. And indeed, you know, in some ways, rather ruinously for the United States in the 1930s, some of us would argue. Again, that sort of ebbed and flowed. Is that what Trump represents? And again, maybe I do also want to get onto the extent to which this is durable beyond Trump, but some of the sort of people now who are associated with this wing of the party, the J.D. Vances and Josh Hawley's and others like that. Do you see this as being reluctance to support Ukraine, strong criticism of American interventions abroad, particularly in Iraq and to some extent Afghanistan. Is this just a sort of a resurgence of that kind of, again, what has long been a strand of conservative thinking? It is a resurgence. It's somewhat unexpected. This type of rejection of American leadership in the world and American hard power hasn't been associated with the conservatives or with the Republican Party for many years, but is back. Trump, again, he started the trend with America first, but that didn't mean Trump was a dove. There are a lot of instances of Trump using military force against ISIS. Of course, Trump stayed in Afghanistan for the duration of his presidency. I mean, eventually he made the deal to begin winding down, but for much of his presidency, we're in Afghanistan. Trump fought with his Defense Department over American deployments in Syria. We're still in Syria. Again, Trump's kind of opened this door and other people have walked in. And so now the conversation, as you say, is cutting off aid to Ukraine, is national security prioritization, focusing on defending Taiwan rather than focusing on Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the NATO alliance. And then this more generalized criticism of American intervention. I think this is a durable strain now on the American right. Parties can change pretty quickly, and the attitudes toward foreign policy are often a function of attitudes in domestic policy. And when I look at the debate over aid to Ukraine, it seems to me that very quickly this debate has been over the liberal war in Ukraine. And Republicans, I think incorrectly, but this is what I'm seeing, Republicans now just view continued aid to Ukraine as a giveaway to the Biden administration. That's not a healthy development either for Ukraine or for American leadership in the world more broadly. I'm sure that that's right. You also have this sort of broader school of opinion on the right, you know, perhaps most exemplified by people like Tucker Carlson, who not only, exactly as you say, they don't like liberal wars or liberal interventions, they seem to actually despise America itself because of the woke takeover or because of the corruption or because of, you know, a, a weaponized judiciary and the regime that is against the people. They seem to have that view that, you know, that the communists had during the Cold War that anything other than America was actually better than America. Again, that I think is pretty new. Is that just all tied up with this current moment of craziness around Trump and everything else that we're seeing right now? Or do you think that kind of deep, deep dissatisfaction and disdain with the country and the authorities and the sovereignty of the country is somehow, do you think that's enduring? I think it's real. I don't know what its lifeline is. I do know that it very much resembles the new left, the anti-war left of the 1960s and 70s where what began as a critique and opposition to America's war in Vietnam radicalized into a more general condemnation of America itself and a desire to 
actually overturn America, a very anti-American view almost. That happened pretty quickly on the left, and you see it happening in some quarters of the right. In the case of the new left in the 1970s, it kind of just stopped in the 1970s, kind of burnt itself out. There was a lot of turmoil and violence, but then it just ended. Something similar might happen here, but we may be at the beginning of the process rather than the end. Let me try out sort of one of my favorite kind of particular political theories on you at the moment. It's not really a theory, it's just an observation about electoral politics in the United States in the last 30 years. It seems that obviously we're all familiar with the phenomenon of deep polarization and hyper-partisanship. We all know that that's you know, intensified broadly over the last 30 years. But I think what's particularly striking to me is that it's not just polarization, it's kind of very evenly balanced polarization. We've had this kind of slightly weird situation where in every election since 1992, you know, the winning candidate, every presidential election, the winning candidate has never won more than 52% of the vote. In most of the elections before 1992, we had landslides. We had LBJ in 64, and we had Nixon in 72, and we had Reagan in 84, and Bush actually in 88. And somehow, particularly obviously on the conservative side, I'm thinking about Reagan, whatever one may think about Reagan's relevance to today, what he did seem to be able to do was to build this enormous majority, which would landslide in an election and would somehow would reshape the country. Again, I'm old enough to remember the Reagan years very well. He certainly didn't unite the country, faced a lot of opposition even after he'd won his 84 landslide. But you know, there was an ability to appeal way beyond the kind of base of the party to a very large number of Americans. It seems to me that, you know, we're now, once again, as we look at the election next year, with you know, we're kind of adding up almost the electoral college votes. We're seeing, does Trump get to 49% again to win or does Biden? Do you see any change to that? Any way in which, particularly on the conservative side, on the Republican side, there is some way of emerging here to sort of break this really paralyzing deadlock where the country seems to be? I don't see it happening anytime soon. I think you're absolutely right to hit on 1992. That's our first post-Cold War election. And it was the first election where a baby boomer was elected president, Bill Clinton. And we're still living in that era of boomer dominance in American politics. And I don't think it's going to end in 2024. It may end by 2028. Just actuarially, it has to end. At some point, <laughs> the boomers will be taken away from the political scene. It seems to me that the generations in waiting actually could be more open to the type of large margins of victory that we saw when the greatest generation and the silent generation were in power, simply because there seems to be more of a consensus of values among these younger generations, the millennials, the Gen Zs. The problem with the past 30-some years is there has been no consensus on values, and there hasn't been an overarching issue like the Cold War against the Soviet Union to kind of force Americans into a kind of a framework of mutual understanding about, about the world. Obviously, there was disagreement, but just kind of a shared worldview, it hasn't been necessary in any way. So I think we're kind of stuck with the politics we have. As you point out, Jerry, very strange politics where Neither party is winning, but both parties believe that themselves to be losing. And that doesn't help anyone because <laughs> on the one hand, you have these big swings for the fences policy-wise, but you have elections that are being decided by narrower and narrower margins. You've written this terrific history of conservative movement over the last 
hundred years, the last century. And it is one, exactly as you describe, and you put it very well in the book, of the sort of ebbs and flows of the different strands of conservatism kind of rising and falling and the different coalitions forming and reforming. But again, it sort of comes back to the question about, you know, post-Trump, if you like, how enduring is this sort of current populist ascendancy? Do you think once Trump does leave the scene, assuming he, assuming he does, I have some friends who think that uh, notwithstanding the constitutional term limits on him, he may well, if should he win next year, won't be going anywhere in 2028. But assuming he does eventually leave the scene, do you think that this populism that now does seem to be in the ascendant is enduring for another decade or so? Is this the dominant strand of conservatism now for a while? I do, Jerry. And that's because populism predates Trump as much as it will post-date him. The revolt against the Republican establishment was visible in the second George W. Bush administration and the massive backlash against his immigration proposals. It clearly took a new step with the Tea Parties during the Obama years, then it's become this Trump MAGA movement in our current moment. Populism seems to me to be driven by migration, which is not going anywhere, as we can see from the headlines, but also the changing values of college-educated and postgraduate degree holders in the United States. Those values have been moving left. They've been growing more left, even as the economic returns to having a college or an advanced degree grow higher. And that sort of separation between the college voters and the non-college voters is going to be a force in our politics and a driver of populism, even if Trump were to exit the stage tomorrow. Are those demographics, in your view, pointing in that sort of same direction, are they, towards the ascendancy of the sort of populist tendency? Yeah, I mean, at least, like I say, at least for another 10 years, there will be a certain point where, again, the generational change will create a new type of political pattern, one that I think actually might be more consensual than what we have today. But that seems to me to be still off in the future. We have to get past 2024 in particular, I think, if we want to see a more productive uh, American politics come into being. Amen to that. I think we can certainly agree. Matthew Continetti, thanks for joining Free Expression. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, have a great week. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective, Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed, and Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.